Kia Ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. Thank you, Anna, and thank you very much, everyone, for coming uh, this evening. Um, and uh, uh, I was expect uh, told I had to wear a microphone, and but when um, from, uh, but I, evidently I said I wasn't going to wear it unless it went in my outfit. And <coughs> I haven't heard anything back, so obviously there's no microphone, uh, so that's all good. But thank you for coming, uh, to colleagues, um, to students, uh, to friends, and to everyone who's made time to actually be here uh, this evening. I, I think to start with I want to be quite clear as to what I'm saying and what I'm not saying, to sort of lay my cards on the table, so to speak. After 40 years give or take. I've been teaching history in schools in a range of, of environments and in the university sector. I've been increasingly concerned at how little knowledge young people have of the process of colonization in New Zealand. And I see that in part as being a consequence of the very low priority <clears throat> that knowledge has in the New Zealand curriculum, and especially through the ambivalent nature of knowledge with NCA in the senior school. But I also see it as partly a problem that comes from a high autonomy curriculum. I think that that contributes to young people not engaging with the sort of essential knowledge about the process and difficult controversial nature of um, difficult histories in New Zealand uh, during their education. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. But I want to be quite clear <coughs> that what I'm not arguing is for an uncritical, fact-based, master narrative that should be taught in schools. The sort of curriculum that was introduced by Michael Gove in the United Kingdom some years ago because there simply wasn't enough, as he said, British history being taught. It was a curriculum that <clears throat> caused an enormous amount of angst and anxiety and difficulty for uh, history educators and for history teachers who have a, a long tradition of teaching young people how to think critically of uh, the United Kingdom. But it also did little to actually engage young people with controversial, difficult aspects of the past, uh, with the experience of empire, with the experience of Ireland. And that idea of engaging young people with controversial issues, difficult issues and what those mean, is actually an essential part of citizenship. That was not part of the idea of what Michael Gove saw as a curriculum being. Not to mistake, however, that having a strong fact-based <clears throat> understanding of the past is not a disadvantage, uh, something we've been reminded of recently uh, with the musings of the President of the United States as to the causes and consequences of the American Civil War. But in itself, it does not actually deal with the sort of problems and questions of actually what citizenship means, and it's not what I'm arguing <clears throat> we need to return to. So that being said, what am I going to say? Well, basically I'm going to talk about three things. 
Um, I'm going to talk about firstly what the New Zealand curriculum is and where it comes from and the wider patterns that sat at the heart of how curriculum making worked in a New Zealand set setting. And then I want to talk about the place of knowledge <clears throat> in the New Zealand curriculum, the very ambivalent place of knowledge and what the implications that, that, uh, uh, that has for us um, when we think about developing ideas about critical citizenship. And finally, what I'd like to do is to make some concluding remarks about what sorts of things or what principles could guide us if we thought about constructing a curriculum that ensure that all young people engage with controversial historical questions as part of their education. So when young people look <coughs> at an image like Ralph Potteri's Land of the Wrong White Crowd, uh, that it made some sense to them that it was actually able to be placed into context. I think the first thing to talk about <coughs> is this idea of controversial issues. One of the things that the literature on citizenship is relatively clear about is engaging with controversy is a core component of how young people make sense of the world and develop the dispositions of critical citizenship in a democratic society. But controversial issues or controversy is something which changes over time and it's different in different parts of the world and at different times. For example, the idea of Anzac Day being a day that talks about sacrifice and duty and loyalty uh, and remembering those people who went to fight in overseas wars uh, for, uh, for New Zealand um, is not a controversial issue. But the idea that people should protest on Anzac Day, the idea that people might remember aspects of the Anzac narrative that are not part of the mainstream idea of what Anzac is, that is controversial. And so when we think about controversy, we have to be careful about what that actually means. And internationally, there's a growing body of research that talks about what that might look like. For example, Tisfia Goldberg in Israel has done a body of work over the last eight years looking at the way the Holocaust is historicized in, um, uh, in Israel, in Israeli schools. And what he finds is that <clears throat> the Holocaust is taught uh, in a very thorough, detailed way. Uh, from the age five through to the age of 18, students start to engage with questions to do with the Holocaust. They deal with quite difficult aspects of the Holocaust. Difficult in the sense that um, the role of, for example, um, the Jewish Council in working in the ghettos and sending a certain number of people through for, uh, for the Nazis to send to camps. Difficult aspects. So we could look at what's happening in Israel and say, this is a strong understanding of history, historicized nature of this important event which is there. But when Goldberg takes that sort of work and works with young people who have these strong, empathic understandings of what the Holocaust means and tries to transfer that into thinking about what the experience was for Palestinians. That's not the case. In an Israeli setting, the Holocaust is not a controversial issue. Palestinians is a controversial issue. That's an issue that's much more troubled, much more uncomfortable. And when we think of New Zealand, the area that is difficult and uncomfortable, particularly, is the New Zealand wars. 
the wars between the colonial government <coughs> and, and a number of iwi in the 19th century. Uh, uncomfortable and difficult because of the traumatic, difficult experience that was for Māori, both for those who um, supported the government, those who opposed the government, and those who in some way tried to remain neutral, but uncomfortable because it's still part of the story and the questions and, and areas that we still actually have to deal with. Um, it's still something that stands out to us as being uncomfortable and difficult to deal with. It hasn't gone away. It hasn't actually been resolved. Now, <clears throat> when we come to think about that and how we come to it, we could probably assume that given New Zealand since the late 1980s operates as a bicultural nation, given that Māori is one of the three official languages of New Zealand, Given that the, the, the work of the Waitangi Tribunal over the last 35 years has dealt with large major historical grievances which were there, we would expect to see that coming through in a school curriculum. But inherently we don't. And we don't, I would argue, for two important reasons. The first is that the curriculum in New Zealand reflects curriculum making pretty much in the internationally over the last 25 years where it does not prioritise knowledge, particularly disciplinary knowledge. Knowledge has a low priority. And that comes through to us in the way that the curriculum is structured. It comes through to us in the way that NCA, which has a very ambivalent nature of not, uh, attitude towards knowledge, with what we call parity of esteem. Parity of esteem basically being that four credits in physics is the same as four credits in forklifting, uh, driving a, fork, a, a, a forklift. Um, the idea, sorry, <laughs> it wasn't very good, was it? Um, the idea that there is no difference between certain types of knowledge. Uh, and that's set at, at the heart of how NCA operated. It sits at the heart of how the curriculum operates. So there's that problem. But secondly, the second problem I would, <clears throat> would argue is important is that the high autonomy nature of the curriculum, where school-based curriculum and uh, schools can make their own choices over what they teach and how they teach and how they structure their programs, means that we can't in any way ensure that difficult, difficult controversial histories are engaged with. The Ministry of Education uh, position is quite clear. It was quite clear when the petition that was put forward, initiated by students in uh, coming from Otorohonga College uh, in December 2015, asked for the curriculum to teach about New Zealand wars and for there to be a day that commemorated New Zealand wars. The ministry position from Lisa Rogers over here was very much saying what we are doing, not doing, and what we're not going to do is make this or any other topic compulsory. The idea that's set behind the high autonomy nature of curriculum making is that it should be up to schools, communities, to decide what would actually be taught. Now, I'm going to problematise that because I think that actually, although um, we can certainly point to many schools that are prominent in how they deal with difficult histories, where they that do see treaty and New Zealand wars and those sorts of things as actually being important, I'm going to problematise about what that actually means, what the implications of it actually are. 
But first I want to talk about where the curriculum actually comes from, because I think that gives us a wider picture, something that came through from what John O'Neill talked about uh, in his lecture, and I think which also came through from the, work, the things that Cathy Wiley talked about as well, and the work that she's done on self-managing schools. Firstly, the curriculum that we have today comes out of a particular period of time when there was an anxiety about increasing diversity and the idea that education should be aligned and linked to economic imperatives. Um, the idea was that the education and what happens in schools should be preparing young people to be able to develop the skills and abilities to operate successfully in a changing and competitive global environment. Um, now, that tied in to the idea that when we looked at the sort of nature of the changing world of work, education was seen as a key driver, particularly curriculum, particularly what would be taught in schools. And what we see in curricula pretty much right around the Western world and to some degree um, <clears throat> in other parts of in, in Southeast Asia as well, is we see some key uh, trends or themes in curriculum making. And the first is this idea of a learner-centred pedagogy. The teacher as facilitator rather than conveyor of expert knowledge. The idea that uh, teacher's main role was to facilitate learning rather than actually prioritise their knowledge of content, their knowledge of the subject they were teaching. We see also this idea of generic pedagogies, the idea of that there are particular ways of learning that are common to all subjects in schools, um, that students are being prepared to be lifelong learners. We see coming through that the idea too of a curricula that is very closely aligned to assessment and qualifications and measurement. And so in New Zealand we find NCA. For the final three years of secondary school, we spend, teachers spend a huge amount of their time measuring what students can actually do, how they, how they can, whether they've achieved particular knowledge-based <coughs> uh, tasks that are actually set for them. We've even seen that introduce the course into primary schooling with national standards. This idea, if we can't measure something, then it's not happening. So learner seat of pedagogy, teachers um, as facilitators rather than conveyors of expert knowledge, generic lifelong learner pedagogies for lifelong learners, and measurable outcomes. And then finally, this idea of a culture of accountability, where it's not only students that are being measured, but schools that are being measured, where schools are actually accountable. And they're accountable to um, the Education Review Office, they're accountable to the Ministry of Education, they're also accountable to their community. So one of the characteristics we've seen in secondary schooling in the last uh, 10, 15 years of schools have become increasingly competitive is we've seen those wonderful big signs that we get sitting out the front saying 100% pass rate NCA. And the school next door is pretty much saying exactly the same sorts of things. This idea that knowledge and learning is not a priority What's a priority is this idea of being able to measure what students can actually do. Sitting underneath that is what <clears throat> people like John White talk about, is subject knowledge is seen as outmoded, inward-looking, uh, specialist. And as, as Michael Young points out, uh, what genericism ignores 
is that there are particular powerful ways of thinking and understanding that come from disciplinary knowledge that, um, that students need to actually engage with. And as Young also points out, because Young comes out, of course, critical theory as a critical theorist, he says that students, if they don't engage with that sort of knowledge when they're at school, uh, if, if they're a disadvantaged student, they don't get it anywhere else. If you're a young person growing up in a, in a, in a, in a house where you have parents who uh, have, make a priority of education and read books and talk about ideas, then not what happens at school is not probably going to be uh, absolutely essential. If you don't get exposed to powerful ideas or understanding of the world at school, you'll still get it. But if you don't get that at home and you don't get it at school, you don't get it. So, to some extent, <clears throat> what Young would say is genericism and not exposing young people to that sort of knowledge means that disadvantaged students remain disadvantaged. They remain shut out um, of <clears throat> the sort of knowledge they need. Well, that's the international <clears throat> scenario. What does the New Zealand curriculum look like? Well, the New Zealand curriculum reflects much of that, it but it reflects it in somehow almost <clears throat> a New Zealand setting. Because one of the things we value about New Zealand is that idea of consensus and getting along with each other. And so when we think of those big debates that were raging, that were going on in the 90s and early 2000s, and saying what a curriculum would be, there were people that were saying a curriculum should be about measurable outcomes, which is pretty much what curriculum had looked like in the 1990s. And we all know, for those who we taught from curriculum and documents of the 1990s, these big, thick documents for each particular subject. And there was someone saying, that's what we need. We need outcomes-based education. We need to be able to measure it. And then there were people who were saying, well, actually, no. There's other sorts of things that happen in education as well. What about the values that young people learn? What about the sort of competency-based learning they need about having um, the resilience to keep going when things go wrong or being able to manage themselves? What about those sides of the curriculum? And it went back and forth. And I guess what the New Zealand curriculum reflected is a very New Zealand approach. It basically did both. So it's a very interesting document. Because it basically, it's a bit like a, uh, it, it is very much like sort of a, 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 a beast that's designed by committee. Because at the back you have a reduced version of outcomes-based education, which is aligned to some degree uh, in the senior school with NCA and with measurement. And in the front you do have um, uh, key competencies and vision statements and principles and values that sit together. Um, but what's common to it, we'd find from other parts of the world, is that knowledge is not prominent. Knowledge is not even prominent in the back part of the curriculum, where the eight learning areas were pretty much just to transfer through from what had happened before and then just reduce down a bit. And I think that absence of knowledge, which I think Kathy Wiley would probably comment on, goes much further in New Zealand than it does overseas because schools are self-managing. So whereas when Tomorrow's Schools was introduced in 1989, curriculum remained in the hands of the Ministry of Education, curriculum decisions about what would be, how curriculum would work, that's no longer the case. Although we still have our Ministry of Education curriculum document, it is now so high autonomy, it's now so wide, pretty much schools can make their own decisions. To some extent it's what makes the uh, idea of charter schools such a nonsense in a New Zealand setting. Because charter schools, of course, come out of North America and come out of the United Kingdom, where what they wanted to do was they didn't want to teach a national curriculum. They wanted to teach their own curriculum. But we can have a New Zealand curriculum, which is so broad, we can pretty much teach whatever we like. 
So we can have, for example, the, school, um, the Westmount schools, which are brethren schools, can pretty much teach a version of um, the curriculum, and it's still within the New Zealand curriculum. Steiner schools can do the same. Montessori schools can do the same. They can all fit. It's this broad, uh, high autonomy model which is there. Um, but knowledge doesn't become part of the debate, which is actually there. Now, when we pull that down and start looking at what happens about things to do with citizenship, we're primarily then talking about social studies and history, because those are the two core areas that see themselves as dealing with that particular area. Um, but the social studies and history are both quite, or social studies and social sciences typically are quite fragmented area, uh, learning area in secondary schools. The students are very unlikely to develop sort of a cohesive understanding of, um, uh, of knowledge. And that's particularly affected by the ambivalent place of knowledge for NCA, um, the fragmented nature of knowledge in NCA, where students can pick and choose about what they teach, and teachers will encourage them in many cases to pick and choose because they're under pressure for students to actually succeed. And so there are particular standards that are easier for students to do. Uh, and if you're under press pressure from your principal that you want students to pass, you will make sorts of choices that are not about knowledge, but they're about qualifications. Uh, when we wrote the recent book on NCA, I wanted to call it uh, um, educated or qualified, question mark, but I was outvoted, so we called it NCA, which at least everyone knows what it's about. Uh, it doesn't necessarily say that it's not an exciting title, but there we go, actually then. So, sitting at the heart of that, a high autonomy model, a model that doesn't actually emphasise knowledge. But then, if I was in the Ministry of Education, or an advocate of the, um, uh, of the curriculum, <clears throat> then I could say something like this. I'd say that at the end of the day, history and social studies are free to choose. New Zealand curriculum doesn't preclude them from engaging their students with difficult histories. They can do so. And I would also say <clears throat> that there are lots of teachers, some of them in this room, who have the intellectual confidence and the pedagogical abilities to exactly do that. We do find we can go to schools where students engage with difficult, controversial issues, where students go on field trips to Parihaka and to Rangariri and to deal to Arako, to go to these places and they sit and talk about what actually happened there. There's certainly those sorts of things actually happening. Uh, the New Zealand History Teachers Association is full of those sorts of teachers uh, as examples, and the Ministry of Education Māori History Initiative looked at particular teachers who led the community. However, what I would say to that is two things. Firstly, I say that they are the exception rather than the rule. They are teachers that we call risk-takers, motivated, as people like Alison Kitts and Alan McCulley said, working with teachers in Northern Ireland, um, that the sort of teachers who are prepared to, um, who are motivated for students to, to engage with big, difficult histories, uh, difficult aspects of the past, rather than simply prepare them for qualifications or for them to cover the curriculum. But more importantly than that, what I would say to that argument is that curriculum choices don't happen in a vacuum. Teachers are not autonomous entities when it comes to curriculum making in a school setting, especially where schools are self-managing and have considerable control over teaching programs. The idea that teachers can choose what they teach pretty much fits with the same idea that all schools can be successful if they choose to do so, which of course has been a strong part of the ethos uh, in all sorts of parts of New Zealand in the last 20 or 30 years. When it comes to curriculum, that's not so much the case. I think we get a sense of that 
in this second last part of the talk where I want to talk about the petition that was put forward in December 2015 that asked, requested two things. Firstly, there should be a day set aside to commemorate the New Zealand wars. And secondly, that the New Zealand wars should be taught in, uh, in, secondary, in, in secondary school, should be in the New Zealand curriculum. It came from <coughs> a number of students, particularly uh, Bell, Waimara Anderson at Otorahonga College, who, along with many of their peers, were frustrated and saddened and to some extent outraged that when their school took them on a class trip to uh, Orako and um, Rangiafia, uh, where a number of um, uh, atrocities and, and terrible things had happened during the wars of the 1860s, they said, why haven't we been taught this? Why isn't this part of the knowledge that we were expected to actually know? This is only half an hour down the road. And they went to their teachers and they said, what are we going to do about this? How do we make something like this happen? Now what's remarkable about that petition, which I guess because it, you know, a lot of things that happen in New Zealand are often so remarkable, we only really think they're remarkable until someone overseas comes and says that's really remarkable, is because it came from students. It was the same thing that teachers have been saying for years and years and years. It's the same thing historians, many of them, have been saying for many, many years. But this came from students saying, we need to know these things. And to some extent, <clears throat> we can look at the language of that petition, as you can see here, and you can see the influence of material written about the First World War, a commemoration and remembrance, which is actually there. The idea of blood that was shed, uh, lives that were given. Uh, we cannot afford to forget the ultimate sacrifice. Those same sorts of ideas that sat at the heart of that, which were actually there. Uh, but still, this was an extraordinary response to say something needs to happen. Now, what's interesting is that the <coughs> Māori Affairs Committee uh, took the petition and then started to call for public submissions that I want to talk about. And 23% of those submissions were very much in support. But the vast bulk we're going to talk about in a moment were actually against, vehemently against. And I want to talk about that because I think that tells us something about the nature of why a high autonomy curriculum and teachers not being autonomous entities when it comes to curriculum making is problematic. Um, <coughs> those um, people who supported the submissions, uh, support, the submissions that supported the petition, basically could be broken into four areas. They were firstly people uh, who argued the idea of a moral responsibility. 44% New Zealanders have a responsibility to be aware of both the positive and negative features of our colonial past. The idea, drawing upon the sort of work that Vincent uh, O'Malley has done a lot, the, and, and the work that, and that's come through in the media as well, of saying New Zealanders need to know about their past. They need to know about the good things about the past, need to know about the bad things about the past, um, which is actually there. And to some extent that reflects a particular way of thinking <coughs> about um, what a strong narrative of the past should look like. 
as I mentioned when I talked to Michael Gove about Michael Gove before, um, Michael Gove was supported <clears throat> primarily by two prominent historians. The first was Simon Sharma, uh, who very much said that there should be a particular version of the past taught. But <clears throat> uh, once he started saying what that was, he then sort of slipped down in Michael Gove's estimation, because basically what Sharma said was that, yes, we should learn about Beckett and all those sorts of things, but we should also learn about the genocide in Ireland. We should also learn about the famine in India, and we should learn about the opium wars. And at that stage, Sharma was sort of shunted to the side, but of course, if anyone <clears throat> who has anything to, had anything to do with him or heard Simon Sharma speak, he doesn't tend to go quietly, so he just sort of went. And basically, it was Niall Ferguson uh, who then stepped into the role as an historian who very much talked about with books like The West and the Rest, uh, the notion of a, of a grand narrative, which is there. The idea of moral responsibilities is a particular body of <clears throat> knowledge that people need to have, both the good and the bad. Then there's this idea too, I guess, smaller, the idea of national identity, um, knowing it will contribute to social cohesion. The idea of New Zealand having an interesting history, an exciting history. And then finally, a small, this idea that there isn't simply one history of New Zealand wars, in New Zealand, that it has to be localised. That if you're living in the, <coughs> um, uh, in, uh, in the South Island, you might have a very different idea about what the New Zealand wars meant than if you were in the Waikato, we were on the East Coast, or you're in Wellington. As I say, 23% in support. Um, the Ministry of Education <coughs> response reinforced, as I said before. Here's Peter Hughes, Secretary of Education, with his submission. Um, it pretty much fitted with the idea of the curriculum. It is up to boards of trustees and each school and quarter to decide, in consultation with their community, what context, what resources they will actually use. So there were no surprises there. <coughs> but the majority of, of submissions opposed <coughs> the petition. And they opposed the petition quite vehemently. And in this part of this work, I'm drawing upon the, the um, submissions that came through, but I'm also drawing a lot on the work and the article recently written by Joanna Kidman and, and Vincent O'Malley, which very quickly uh, put this material together. I acknowledge that work that you did, uh, looking at where this might come from. When we look at the reasoning <coughs> that's set behind opposition, one of the characteristics of <coughs> the opposition was that it was not based on the work of historians or the research literature. Uh, and I want to talk a bit about where that comes from in a moment after we've looked at it. But whereas we could say the su submissions that supported the petition were very much based around the sort of work that has been done in the last 20 or 30 years by New Zealand historians, very much reference, often in some cases, a number of historians put in submissions, uh, and coming from groups like New Zealand History Teachers Association uh, as well putting in submissions which you did. That wasn't the case for those who actually opposed this. The idea, firstly, that the petition is divisive, that knowing about this difficult history will divide people. Um, the idea that the wars were not wars but all, they were tribal rebellions, uh, that somehow this was a legitimate government under the Treaty of Waitangi, and opposition, um, <clears throat> therefore, was a tribal rebellion. Therefore, they shouldn't be commemorated. Um, the idea of the past being misleading, uh, selective, politically correct views of the past that doesn't take into account the full picture, such as the intertribal <clears throat> uh, Iwi Wars of the early 19th century that saw far more casualties. 
Um, the, the idea that it was unnecessary. We're all New Zealanders and should focus on the future. And then a small number <clears throat> was sort of fitted into that sort of uh, outright racism where we simply say Europeans brought civilization. But that wasn't typical of what most of those submissions were. Uh, most of those submissions sat inside an idea or context of saying this is divisive, it's unnecessary, um, it's grievance history, nothing good will come from it, <clears throat> which is actually there. Uh, they were also petitions, have to say, the submissions that were very short. Uh, they often, in some cases, were no more than two or three lines or a paragraph. Uh, short, strongly worded, <clears throat> often using quite um, vehement uh, language, um, but uh, not at all sort of um, uh, holding back in that sense, which was actually there, about why the petition uh, shouldn't actually go through. And I think at this time, I think. It's worth reminding us, we think about a high autonomy curriculum. Teachers are embedded into a local community. If they're embedded into a local community that largely shares the views that we should engage with difficult histories, they can do all the sorts of things that we would want them to do. Uh, but if they're embedded in a community where that's not the case, it's very difficult for them to actually do so. And I think what's useful here is to talk about this idea of what we call willful ignorance. Um, the idea that sits behind the idea that we're all New Zealanders, racial divisions, irreversible separatism. The idea of it coming from um, uh, Mikhail Simlos from Cyprus um, talks about the idea of how ignorance is produced and reproduced. That willful ignorance is not an absence of knowledge. It's about a particular social process a process of maintaining ignorance through the reinforcement of unknowing about inconvenient and discomforting truths. When we look at those submissions, when we look at the sort of arguments that are put forward by groups like Hobson's Pledge, which very much reinforce what the submissions that opposed were saying or, or um, similar sorts of lobby groups, what we see is almost a, a version of fake news. It's a version of really saying, this, this, this information might be here, but it's fake. It's not real. And then a shift over here saying, but this is real. Of course, what makes it disturbing is it's not as though it's ignoring one historian and taking another. It's basically ignoring the vast bulk of scholarship and historical thinking about the past in New Zealand and simply just putting forward an opinion view that has no basis to it. But it's powerful for all that. Powerful, although we could probably say, <clears throat> and I think as um, Amalie and Kidman argued, that this is the reason, when they talked about that nostalgia for old certainties among Pākehā New Zealanders after 40 years of bewildering change, although this is not part of the mainstream discourse about the um, way people think about treaty and New Zealand wars at this point in time, we know that can change very quickly. We found that out in 2004 and 2005 when the seabed and foreshore suddenly brought forward a, a, a body of thinking and antagonism and, um, towards Māori that most people didn't even realise was there. And I think that's what these submissions do when we think about a high autonomy curriculum and the idea of teachers having their own choice is in many cases teachers don't have a choice. They don't have a choice to make those sorts of things. So it's not the, the answer is not to point at teachers and say, why aren't you doing this? 
He asks us to think in a wider sense, of, in the sense of how systematically how things have actually been uh, set up. What we see with those <coughs> um, submissions, and we see with groups like Hobson Choice, and obviously there, there was a lot of overlap there, uh, is these sort of schematic narrative templates that what we see is sort of like a simple, uncontested version of the past uh, that sort of reinforced the values and collective memories uh, which were there. But I think what was most disturbing for me, and uh, I don't know about <coughs> Joanna and Vincent when you looked at this, but I read these on a very, very late at night um, and, uh, in the middle of winter when I had sort of had to come and go to my work and I thought, oh, I'll just go and work. And I was, I was <coughs> with nobody at home at that time. And I suddenly started downloading these submissions. And it was awful. It took me three and a half hours to do it. And as I read them, I just read litany after litany of extremely racist, unpleasant material, which at two o'clock in the morning, in a little tin shed uh, sitting on the side of a cliff uh, over here, <coughs> which is I'm quite comfortable with, was actually quite disturbing. And I think what stood out to me was the lack of empathy. And that refusal to acknowledge vulnerability which comes through when we think of willful ignorance about how opposition is dealt with. Zemblis talks about the denial of others' vulnerability is one of the most powerful ways to ignore those aspects of existence that are inconvenient, disadvantageous, and discomforting. It was that that sat at the heart of what made, I think, these submissions so disturbing as what's actually there. Well, <clears throat> with that being the case, <clears throat> as it's there, I want to make a few concluding remarks about what we might want to think about <clears throat> if we started to talk about principles. I don't think we're in any place where we can start talking about a curriculum change, but I think we probably can start talking about <clears throat> particular principles for teaching and learning difficult histories. I think the first thing is this question of teaching expertise. I think what we've seen in the last 25 years is we've seen a long undermining of teachers' knowledge about what they teach. People like John Codd saw that back in the 90s when he talked about the sort of technocratic nature of what teaching is. The idea of a teacher as facilitator rather than a teacher who has a powerful understanding of what they're actually teaching. And I think that has <coughs> been detrimental for many, many young people. And I think, to be honest, faculties of education around New Zealand have been part of that problem. I think we have quite uncritically bought into the idea of, of a, uh, <coughs> um, teachers as facilitators, a focus on organisation, of writing learning outcomes, of fitting into how we teach achievement standards, without asking those real questions of what is education about. It's being able to think critically and independently and make sense of the world. And that, to me, is part of the problem when we think of what curriculum change actually looks like and what we need to talk about. Because one of the things we do know is if we look at those teachers who are risk takers, if we look at teachers that are change agents, if we look at those teachers that go and teach about difficult aspects of the past, they have a strong intellectual confidence in what they're teaching that sets them up to actually do so. So that's the first thing I think we need to have. Well, after having a go at the faculty education, why stop there? Because I think the second thing is about community involvement. 
And one of the things I think the curriculum change has missed enormously in the last 20-odd years is the involvement of universities and academics. One of the perhaps unintended consequences of PBRF is it no longer has become a priority for academics to actually work in schools. And there are certainly a small number of academics who do that. And Vincent, I'd certainly acknowledge you as being someone who does that. Um, but that has not been typical of the way universities have operated. And I don't just mean for history. But when we think about how a curriculum should be developed, it needs to have people involved who are experts in their field. It needs to have people who are doing research, who are aware of what the latest trends are. It needs to be a conversation, and those people need to be part of that conversation uh, as well. There's also other members of the community that need to be involved as well. And one of the good things, I suppose, we can say is when the Māori History Initiative that was set up after um, an agreement made between the Māori Party and the National Government in <coughs> 2014 that met together, a large number of people came into the ministry from iwi areas and um, uh, tribal historians and started to talk about what Māori history should look like. Um, that's still, we'd probably have to say, is relatively disappointing about where that's gone to. We're still waiting for the final result to come out. But it, is, it did indicate the idea that curriculum making involves a whole community. I think the third principle I think needs to sit here is that the principle for teaching about the past should be bounded by disciplinary, powerful, critical ways of thinking about what the past is. Essentially what history is, is history is a, it's, 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 it's a, a discipline and a way of thinking that allows us to critique the world around us, to make sense of the world around us. Without that, very little actually does make sense. And that needs to sit at the heart of how curriculum should be, um, uh, should be, should be shaped. It is not a matter of simply just telling another story, of, of taking this story and let's tell another story. It is about that inherent degree of criticality that sits at the heart of, <clears throat> um, of critical citizenship. And finally, <clears throat> I think we have to ask ourselves the question whether teaching about the difficult aspects of our past should be an optional extra. When young people look at an image like you can see from Orako here, when <clears throat> Māori were asked to surrender <clears throat> and surrounded after uh, day, several days of fighting. And the response that comes back from Hauraki Tonganui is, Eho, ka whawhai tonu aho kikoi, ake, ake. Friend, I shall fight against you forever. And when the British asked, well, in the case, send out the women and the children, because we know they, they are there as well, the response from Aho mai te pairata, kate mati natane. Me mati anu na wahine, me na tamariki. If the men die, the women and the children must die. I don't think engaging with difficult aspects of our past should be an option. I think it's too important. I think it's too interesting. I think it's the core business of what it actually is to be a history educator in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Thank you very much. To stay up to date with the latest cutting-edge research from Victoria University of Wellington, subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast provider.
Thanks to Te Koki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. Victoria University of Wellington, capital thinking, globally minded.